If you've got your Bibles this morning, and open them up with me, please, to Luke chapter 8. Luke's Gospel chapter 8. We're making our way through the Gospel of Luke and begin this morning a new chapter in God's Word. You've heard me say before how my preaching professor defined preaching. If you don't remember it, let me remind you of it. He said that preaching is the art of speaking in someone else's sleep. That was his definition of preaching. I found that to be true over the case in my pastoral ministry of preaching. I have heard hymnals drop out of people's hands as they've fallen asleep. I've actually heard a gentleman uh, awakened by his own snoring at one point, which was rather encouraging. Uh, It's it's interesting uh, as, as you look out among the crowds and you will happen to see people doing the trying not to sleep head bob. You know what that looks like, right? The... Eyes roll back in your head and trying your best not to sleep. It's humorous. Now, I understand that I'm not trying to get on to any one of you who sleeps while I preach. I probably would do the same if I had to listen to myself. Uh, But I understand that there are schedules that make it difficult to stay asleep. I understand that some of you are on medications that cause that to happen. I also understand that at times the sermon's just boring and you try to figure out what to do with the next 30, 45 minutes. But what's most troubling to me, and that which I cannot see, are those whose eyes are awake, but whose souls are asleep. That's that's what's scary. Those who may be awake with their eyes, but yet in their souls they're far away. How do you react to the preaching and teaching of God's Word? How do you hear the Word of God in your life spiritually today? What do you do with the Word of God? In Luke chapter 8, we have a a teaching from Jesus specifically related to the preaching and the teaching of God's Word. Not just the preaching and teaching of it, but the study and the reading of it as well. If you'll look at Luke chapter 8, we're just, we're just going to kind of walk through these opening verses together in what so many of you may, it may even be in your Bible as one of those headings. Remember the headings, the paragraph headings are not inspired of God, although the verses are. But it may be listed in your Bible, the parable of the sower. I think that's really a rather unfortunate title. It's really not the parable of the sower. It's really the parable of the soils that we look at in Luke chapter 8. But look with me beginning in verse 1 and and let's read this. Soon afterwards, he, that is Jesus, soon after what? After the events at the end of chapter 5 that Pastor Wayne shared with you last week. uh, Jesus uh, dealing with this sinful woman. And after these events, Jesus went on through the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God and the twelve were with him. Here Jesus is going about his preaching ministry. He's traveling from city to city proclaiming always the good news of the kingdom of God. Always his pattern. Everywhere he went he would proclaim the message of the kingdom of God. He was preaching the message of what God was doing in the salvation of souls. We read that he had the twelve who were with him. Verse 2, And also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, of whom seven demons had gone out, 
Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Now, I just want to make a, an aside here for just a moment. Uh, this really doesn't have much to do with the sermon itself, but I do want to make an aside about what's pointed out to us in Luke chapter 8, verse 2 and verse 3. There are some who extol this idea that Christianity is anti-women. And if you read the writings of the Apostle Paul, you will read and you will hear people say that Paul was such a misogynist. He was against women and Christianity is anti-women. That's not, simply not true. Someone who shares that with you obviously doesn't understand what Christianity teaches. Not at all. Here in Luke's Gospel, we're reminded of these women who traveled with Jesus. It would be unheard of in that culture in that day for a group of women to travel with an itinerant rabbi in his teaching and preaching ministry. That would never be pointed out. It would never be looked upon favorably, to be quite honest with you. But Christianity does that. In fact, there is no record that I have found anywhere in the New Testament of a woman turning her back on Christ. Many times I read of men doing that, but never women. And so I just want to clarify that for you this morning. If someone tells you something like that, tell them, Balderdash, you don't know what you're talking about. Let's go talk to the pastor, and he'll set you straight on it. So just to point that out, now in verse 4 of Luke chapter 8, we get to the meat of the sermon. And when a great crowd was gathering... We're told about the twelve, the twelve apostles that Jesus had chosen earlier. We read about that in Luke's Gospel. We're told about that. We're told about the women who are following him. But as he's going from city to city, town to town, village to village, there's a great crowd of people that accompany him. In fact, if you go back and you read the parallel account in Mark's Gospel to, to the parable of the soils, say that one quickly, why don't you? The parable of the soils, you will discover that the crowd was so great that they were pressing upon Jesus and about to press him into the lake. And so he had to get on a boat and go out into the boat to be able to teach the crowd that was gathered there. It was so incredibly numerous. Attracted a plethora of people, curious as to what the preacher from Nazareth might say or do. People coming from town after town. You can almost envision the crowds as they make their way, and then other villages, other roadways, other byways coming together, and the crowds growing larger and larger and larger, exponentially growing. Some, some were limping. Some were carrying loved ones, hoping that Jesus might heal them. Uh, some, no doubt, were being guided by others because they themselves were blind, coming in hope of deliverance in some way. Some, some just out of curiosity. What, what's going to happen? What, what might take place here? Some just out of boredom. What else have we got to do? Let's go see about this preacher from Nazareth and see what he has to say. People had already heard what Jesus does. They've heard about him in Nazareth, in Capernaum, coming into the, the city of Nain. They've heard of Jesus' miracle-working power. They've heard of him raising the dead. They've heard of all of these things, and so they come together to heal, uh, to hear what Jesus might do. Perhaps he would heal someone else. Perhaps he would do something miraculous in their midst. He would definitely preach. We know that because that's what he always did, proclaiming the good news. And people had all sorts of notions about who Jesus was and what he might do. 
I imagine probably the most prevalent thought that they had was that this Messiah who would come, he would be a, a coming triumphant king who would do something powerful to usher in the kingdom. There was this anticipation, especially in the Jewish mind, of the Messiah to come. And the conversations would be along the roadways, do you think this is him? Could this be the Messiah that we've read about, that we've anticipated, that we have waited for? The anticipation was high within all of them. Is he the one who is finally going to break the yoke of Roman oppression and we will be set free? And instead of any of that, Jesus tells them a story. I have a story to tell you. He tells them a parable. Perhaps you remember from your days in Sunday school that a, a parable is just an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, a very good definition of what it is, and that's what Jesus does. The story itself is contained in Luke chapter 8, verses 5 through 8. A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. A question for you this morning by show of hands. How many of you, whether they work well or not, have at least one ear with you this morning? Okay, good. We're all covered in what Jesus says to us then. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus describes a very familiar scene for the people here. It's an agricultural uh, setting in which Jesus lived and worked and preached. The sower scattering the seed would be very familiar to these people. It might even have been the case that as Jesus was preaching somewhere off to the side, in the background somewhere, they could see this very thing happening. A sower who was going out and casting his seed uh, throughout the, the, the property there, hoping for a yield. Now, they did it differently in, in this century, in this region. They would throw out the seed before tilling the ground. And then after the seed was sown, then they would come back and they would till up the ground to get it down deep into the ground. You tell the story, you hear the story, you read the story, nothing really spectacular here, is there? Indeed, it's a very familiar scene. There's nothing really moving about it. But the exhortation of, of verse 8 is, is very interesting. We read that as he said these things, he called out. Now, in, in verse 4, we read that he said in a parable. He simply spoke. It's almost like in verse 4, he says, I want to tell you a story. Gather around with me if you will. I, want to, I just want to share a story with you this morning. And then he tells the story. And then in verse 8, different word, he calls out. He proclaims uh, that he who has ears to hear, let him hear. There is a distinction almost in tonal quality. Jesus is demanding their attention. And if he had, if he had said, those of you with ears, I want you to hear that wouldn't have whittled it down much. No, what he said was, those of you with ears to hear, let him hear. See, Jesus is drawing a distinction here, not, not just in our ability to hear, but in doing something with the hearing. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
You see, here is the solemn truth of what Jesus is proclaiming in this parable, and you'll understand it further as we continue to walk through it. How I hear the Bible when it is taught is absolutely crucial. How I hear the Bible when it is taught is absolutely crucial. Because, you know, we have a tendency to hear things differently, don't we? Wives, you're aware of this, aren't you? That was a groan. I thought maybe an amen, but that was an audible groan that I heard from you ladies. You know what it's like. You're sitting there and the television is on and you're talking to your husband and then you stop and you say, are you even listening to me? We hear things differently. We hear noises in the background. How many of you are those kinds of people who say, when I get up, I turn on the television just so I have some noise in the background while I go about my day? A vacuum cleaner that's running. We just hear the noise in the background. So often I think we have a tendency to do the same thing when the Word of God is proclaimed. Keep thinking, what is that dreadful noise that I hear? Oh, yes, it's him up there talking. Okay, carry on with things. I'm going to go back to the channel I was on before. Where do we stand? What does the upcoming football season look like? What are our plans for dinner? And the proclamation of the Word of God is a drone in the background to us. And Jesus says here that the way you hear when the Word of God is taught, is proclaimed, is crucial. Because these parables have a tendency to, to separate the sincere seeker from the casual hearer of things. It's very purposeful in, in this regard. Now the sower doesn't know that. The sower doesn't know who is hearing and who is not hearing. The sower is just given the task of scattering the seed as far as possible. As believers in Christ, as followers of Christ, that's what we need to be doing. We need to be sowers who are scattering the seed. At the same time, we are often those who sit and hear the Word of God being proclaimed. There's the story that's given. A sower goes out to sow and the seed fell on different kinds of soil. And then the disciples come along and they ask Jesus a question. Look at this question. And his disciples in verse 9 asked him what this parable meant. Hey, Jesus, that's a great story, but what does it mean? There's got to be a deeper meaning to all of this, surely. You're not just talking about a sower and seed. What is it that you're trying to get at with this, Jesus? Tell us what this parable stuff means. And then he comes along into verse 10, because see, here's the tendency that we have. We think, well, Jesus taught in these nice little stories, and he taught in these nice little stories, and people came to faith. There were large crowds of people. And so, preacher, why don't you do that? Why don't you just tell these nice little stories so a lot of people will come to hear the nice little stories? And we get it completely backwards because Jesus tells us in verse 10 that the exact opposite is his intent in speaking in parables. He said, to you, talking to his disciples, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. <laughs> and a verse to keep you up at night. Ponder that one for a little while. Oh, Jesus, what are you talking about? I thought that you taught in these parables so that people would understand the truth. And he says, no, I taught these parables so that we will separate those who know the truth from those who do not know the truth. So that these, even though they see, they may not see. And even though they hear, they may not understand. You see, the difference is, Jesus doesn't give these parables to make it 
easier for people to understand. He, in essence, does it to make it harder. You've got to want to know what Jesus means when he uses these parables. You see, the crowds are following Jesus. They're coming after Jesus, and many of them are coming for all kinds of reasons and with all kinds of expectations, and many of those reasons are flawed. Many of those expectations are misplaced. And rather than encourage them in their mistaken notions about what it means to hear, what it means to believe, what it means to follow, Jesus tells these stories which act kind of as a filtration system to distinguish between a genuine seeker and just a superficial listener. In fact, Jesus quotes from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah in this very verse, in Isaiah chapter 6, God tells Isaiah when he calls to him in that, that, that temple scene there, when Isaiah says, here am I, uh, send me. And God basically says to him, I am going to send you and you're going to speak. They're not going to understand. They're going to see, but they're not going to know that was his mission. You see, the reason that God said that is because Isaiah in the Old Testament was speaking with a group of people who were infatuated with their own ideas about religion and God and what all of that means. They come with their expectations and they come with this set of beliefs. This is what it's going to be like. And if it's not like that, then they get angry at God, even though God has done nothing wrong. How will those genuine seekers, those with ears to hear, how will they be distinguished from the others who just wander following his train for all of the wrong reasons? Well, what makes them different is those who have ears to hear, when the crowd goes away, they will still be there. So in this group of people, you've, You've got a guy, let's call him Levi. You've got Levi here who is a political activist. He's ready to overthrow the Roman government. And he goes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, I'm with you. I'm behind you in this. Let's get on board with this and let's take down Rome. And Jesus says, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a story about a sower. And Levi says, well, wait, wait, well, hold on just a minute. I came for a political rally, and if you do that, then I'll follow you. And essentially, in preaching in parables, Jesus looks to him and says, okay, bye, because that's not what I'm about. Or, or perhaps you have someone who is coming and they've heard all about the miracles of Jesus and they come along and they say, Jesus, I just want to see one of those miracles. Jesus, I just want to be the recipient of one of those miracles. And if telling stories is all you're going to do, I've not got time for this. See, people come out of this with all sorts of expectations, all sorts of notions about who Jesus is, what Jesus should do, and how Jesus should act. And it was true not back just in first century Palestine. It's just as simply true today as it was then. People today are not looking for a Christ to save them. They're looking for a Christ to do what they want Him to do. And if He doesn't do what I want Him to do, I don't have time for this. It's the world in which we live. Oftentimes, it's the church in which we live as well. We in the church are so guilty of this at times also that if Jesus doesn't act the way we think Jesus should act, well, we don't have time for that. 
And Jesus basically comes along and he says, I'm going to speak in such a way that those who are genuinely interested in knowing who I am and trusting what I'm going to do, they will come to believe in me and those who will not will not hear anything at all. Why should he do this? Why is it that Jesus would do something like this? He does this because, friends, you do not come to terms with the message of Jesus from the safe distance of a detached curiosity. You'll never come to know who Jesus is in that way. Quite honestly, I believe it's why some of you remain unbelievers to this very day. You you seek to come to grips with the message of Jesus from the safe distance of a detached curiosity rather than an allegiance and obedience in life to Him. Jesus, if you do what I'm wanting you to do, I might just throw my hat in the ring with you. The onus lies with us in this. So many of us are prejudicially committed to closing our ears to what Jesus has to say committed to a Jesus who will say what I want him to say. So that if we ever get to the point where Jesus says something in contradiction to what we want him to say, well, I'm going with what I think he should have said rather than what he actually did say. Kent Hughes, pastor, commentator on this verse said, in essence, Jesus was saying that the condition of one's heart determines whether there is any receptivity to the truth. What's the condition of your heart? amazing we've not even gotten to an explanation of what the parable means we're still dealing with the story itself and what Jesus says to the people what is the condition of your heart he who has ears to hear let him hear do you remember when Jesus was feeding the thousands Jesus is feeding the thousands and then at the end of that he does this great miracle with the loaves and the fish and then he says let me tell you the demands of discipleship. Let me tell you what is expected of a follower of Christ. And do you remember what happened when the miracle stopped? Everybody left. Everyone left. But maybe in the midst of all of that, just one said, what does this mean? I've got to find out. got to the point that Jesus even turned to his disciples and he said to them, are you going to leave too? Are you going to leave? See, we love it when the crowds come and the miracles are done and there is the excitement and the enthusiasm. We've got a great show going here. But when we get to the proclamation of the word of God, They scatter. Jesus dealt with the same thing. Perhaps we should have asked him, or maybe we can ask him when we get to heaven, Jesus, didn't you read any of the church growth books? Come on, Jesus. Don't you know how to do this? You really want to build a church? Well, to do that, you've got to give them what they want. Give the crowd what they want, Jesus, and they'll keep coming. Jesus continues here in in verse 11. It begins after the answer to the question, Jesus gives the explanation of the parable. He says, now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The seed is the word of God. It makes sense. Great comparison because the word of God has life in it. The seed is the word of God. Now it's interesting to me that as you read this, you find no description whatsoever of the sower, do you? (laughs) That's why I say it really shouldn't be the parable of the sower. It should be the parable of the soils. 
There's no description given of the sower. And yet, what do we make much of in our culture today? We make much of the one who was doing the sowing. What was the sower like? Was he a good sower? Was he tall? Was he short? Was he, was he intelligent? Was he not quite so smart? What was the sower like? It doesn't matter. The sower's not the issue. It's not that the sower is irrelevant. He's relevant because the seed doesn't sow itself. But the character, the sower himself, the sower herself is not the point. We do it with preachers today, don't we? Is he educated? Is he a powerful speaker? Is he a charismatic leader? On all of it. The emphasis is on the seed, not the sower. You might be amazed if you read church history and you read about a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards. God used him in great and mighty ways to spark a revival across this nation. One of the most brilliant men that America has ever produced. And he preached the Word of God and notes on the pulpit in monotonous fashion. And yet people would begin weeping in confession to God before the sermon was even completed. Why? Because it is the seed that has the power, not the sower. That's the issue. When a church forgets that the seed is the Word of God, it's going to make something else become central to it all. The Word of God is the seed. Sowers come, sowers go, sowers can be replaced. The seed cannot. So he continues, verse 12, The ones along the path are those who have heard. He goes back to the parable that he told. He says in verse 5, Sower went out to sow his seed. As he sowed, some fell along the path, was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. What does this mean? Verse 12, Well, the ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. Then he continues, verse 13, going back to verse 6, some fell on the rock. As it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Verse 13, the ones on the rock are those who, when they heard the word, received it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, they fall away. Third kind of soil, verse 7, some fell among thorns. The thorns grew up with it and choked it. Verse 14, and as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. And then finally, some fell into good soil, grew and yielded a hundredfold. Verse 15, as for that in good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, and bear fruit with patience. Now we have the meaning of the parable. We have one sower and four types of soil within it. One sower, four types of soil. See, I want to remind you today that spiritual fertility does not lie in the gift of the sower. Spiritual fertility does not lie in the gift of the speaker, but in the power of the seed. Look at the types of soil that Jesus mentioned. He mentions in verse 12 the, the petrified heart. I'll alliterate for you this evening to, or this morning to remember the types of soil. 
not original with me, I'm sure, but I have no idea where I got it from. First of all is the petrified heart. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Remember Jesus said that some fell along the path. When you have the, the, the field that was out there, you would have pathways in between where the seed would be sown, obviously for the farmer to walk back and forth through the crops. And also for other people who were traveling about, they would walk down the middle of your field at times. And so it would be pressed down almost like concrete concrete there. The soil that would fall upon it wouldn't be taken up into the soil at all. Jesus says this is what those people are like. The devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so they may not believe and be saved. The, the word of God is gone before they really even get to their car in the parking lot. It's cast out and it's gone away. Nothing to it. Their hearts are hardened to the things of God. Their hearts are petrified, hardened, solid against the things of God. Don't confuse me with your word, God. I know what I believe, and I'm just going to stand right there on it. Hardened to the things that God expresses within his word. Secondly, in verse 13, there is the petty heart, the, the shallow heart. We're told about that again in verse 6. Some fell on the rock. Verse 13, these are those who when they hear the word, they receive it with joy, but they don't have any root. They believe for a while, and in times of testing, they fall away. In that, in, in that region, just like much of us here in this region, there were rocks just beneath the surface. And when plowed, you wouldn't really get down deep into the rocks at times, and so the plant would very quickly shoot up. That sun that brought growth would continue to bear down. And because the plant was unable to break through the rock to get uh, to the, the water below, it, it would just shrivel up. It would wither away. It would die because it had no root system. Roots couldn't get through the bedrock and the limestone. We understand that. We, we know what it's like here in East Tennessee, right? Corn won't grow at all on Rocky Top. It's too rocky by far. I won't sing the rest of it for you. We'll move on. We understand what that's like. You've tried to dig a garden, you've tried to plow a garden, and your, your, your tiller just keeps hitting rock after rock after rock. And you've got to really work it and get the rocks out before you can do anything with it. These people are those who, who have this burst of enthusiasm where the, the root goes down but not in. There's, there's really no root at all. It's just simply an emotional response. It comes up quickly. And then they're like a five-minute wonder. They're gone after that. You see them for a fleeting moment, and then later you see them in the grocery store or somewhere else, and you say, hey, uh, we, we've, we've missed you. Where have you been? And uh, they come along and say, well, you know, really, I, I thought it was going to be different than it was. I, 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 thought that, I thought Jesus was going to do this and this. and I thought Jesus was going to bring friends into my life. And he didn't bring friends into my life. In fact, as a result of partnering with him, I've lost friends. And I don't really want that. I thought Jesus would, would bring me a new job in some way. And it just didn't happen. So I thought, that's not really for me. We've seen it before. An emotional response to an emotional appeal. And then it's gone. It's done. 
over as quickly as it began, perhaps even pass through the baptismal waters, but never to be seen or heard from again because there's no root there. It is something that sprung up quickly, but when the times of testing, trial, and trouble come, it's gone. Someone who made an emotional, superficial response. Now, don't come out of here and say the preacher thinks emotion is bad. That's Again, to use the word balderdash, there's no truth to that at all. It's certainly the truth that authentic faith involves great emotion. But true faith puts down deep, sustaining roots in the mind and the heart so that when the emotions are not there, the faith still is so that we don't build our faith upon the emotion of the moment, but we build it in such a way that roots go deep down within the ground and bring growth. The question becomes, did this person then lose their salvation? No, they never had salvation to begin with. One of my former pastors used to say, and I've shared with you before, the faith that fizzles was fatally flawed from the first. That's what happens here. The emotions are fickle and they change. Then Jesus tells us about the preoccupied heart as well. Remember some of the seed fell among thorns. And he says, and as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life and their fruit does not mature. I've discovered it's much, much easier to grow weeds than it is to grow flowers. Have you noticed that? They grow and they have a tendency to take over. That's what Jesus is talking about. These cares, these riches, these pleasures of life. We've got to keep up appearances. We've got to keep up with the Joneses. Consumed with the stuff of this earth and this life. And we forget the nature of eternity. I must be. I deserve to be. God wants me to be happy in life. And whenever we find ourselves unhappy, then it's the Lord's fault. We blame Him because we are consumed with the stuff of this world. I'm not preaching to you. I'm preaching to us. We grow enamored with these things that don't last. They're gone. Before we even realize we had them, they're gone. But we have this mistaken notion, I should have what I want, regardless of God's word and obedience to it. Do you understand this? I mean, I read through this, and it causes me to pause. I I look at soil number one, and by the grace of God, that's not where I am. I'm not there on the hard path. I I, I look at at, at number two, and and I realize by the grace of God, I'm not there. But then I read soil number three, and it kind of puts me on edge a little bit. As they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and the riches and the pleasures of life. And their fruit does not mature. Choked out by the stuff of this world. And then finally, in the fourth type of soil, there is the productive heart. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart, bear fruit with patience. 
the, the seed doesn't just bounce off the hard surface of the heart. Nor does the seed just temporarily flourish only to shrivel under adversity. Nor is the seed divided by its own competing desires and thus strangled out. No, it, it takes root. It gives a harvest. The good soil produces of a harvest. It's the only soil about which we can speak with confidence, this, this last soil that's here. It's those who, hearing the word of God, hold it fast in an honest and good heart. Does, does this mean we keep ourselves Christians? We, we get it and we hold fast to it? No. No. It's simply the fact that we that we recognize today that if we keep going, that is an indication that the seed has gone down. It's taken root, and it's producing fruit. To realize that we're not all we ought to be, but we're different from what we once were. We're, we're held fast by Him as we hold fast to the truth of the Word of God. Throughout our Christian walk, we need some pruning, but God still is maintaining us along the journey. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. We come down to verse 18, and just very quickly in this, we read, Take care then, how you hear. Take care then how you hear. How do you hear the word of God? You see, if you put that, take care then how you hear with these first three soils, there, there's a hearing of the word of God. In, in verse 12, they think they have the word, but the devil snatches it away and so it's gone. In verse 13, they think they have the word, but there's no root to sustain them in time of trial. Their, their faith is a superficial enthusiasm. It's only real for fair, fair weather days. Verse 14, they think they have the word, but when the cares, when the riches, when the pleasures of this world come, they run after and pursue their own comfort and desires rather than obedience to the word of God. What kind of soil are you? What kind of soil are you? Is your heart hardened to the things of God? When people proclaim the word of God, when you hear the message of the gospel given, are you hardened to that? And that might be good for you, but it's not for me. Friends, I pray and I pray that you would pray that God would soften your heart so that when His Word is given, you would be open to that, you would be receptive to that, and that your heart would be soft, not just to the Gospel, but living life as Christ commands. Is there a root system to your faith? Is it just a superficial, emotional walk that when everything is going good, you're fine, but when things go bad, you're out of here? 
Is your heart consumed with the things of this world? What's your heart like? Do you love the Word of God? Do you cherish the Word of God? Do you hear the Word of God and put into practice what God says? What is your heart like? What kind of ground does God find in your heart? Would you take just a moment and step back from your own existence and look at yourself with a new perspective? And ask God to really reveal to you, God, what is my heart like? Make it good soil, Father. That your word would take root. That your word would accomplish your purpose in my life. So often, we want the word of God to be shaped to our desires rather than the reverse of that. What is your heart like? Father, in this moment, in, in this stillness, in this quietness, Father, would you show each and every one of us what our heart is like? And Father, where there is need for correction, would you in your grace and mercy bring correction? Father, would you take hardened hearts and make of them hearts of flesh? Father, would you take petty, shallow hearts and make of them hearts that are deep in their desire to know you and your word? Father, for those hearts that are preoccupied with stuff, with things, that will be one moment and gone the next. Would you give to us, please, an eternal perspective that we might see that what matters, what counts, what is necessary is what we do with you, what we do with your word. Father, would you produce in all of us after revealing to us what our hearts are like, would you reveal to us that we might have a repentant heart and that our hearts might be as good soil. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand this morning with us. We'll sing together. And as we sing together, it's a time of response for you. Respond where you are in confession and repentance. If, if you'd like to come and respond and pray with or for someone, you're welcome to do so. If you'd like to know more about what it means to be a follower of Christ, more about what it means to be a member of this church, we'd love to begin that conversation with you even now. If you need to come, you come as we sing together.